So Joel, uh, this is really kind of awkward. It's a hard way to even start off this episode, but I think it's important because there's kind of an issue of sin that I need to address, and it happened publicly on this podcast over over actually a couple episodes. And I just want to I just want to call you lovingly out as a brother about this. But do you do you recall in your lightning round a couple episodes ago, you asked me whether I would prefer the Harry Potter books over the Lord of the Rings movies? Do you remember that? I do. And you remember being kind of disappointed in my answer? I was. You were. Do you remember then, in just the most recent <laughs> podcast, that you also gave me a really hard time about books to movies, great books to movies, and how they shouldn't be done? Yes, I do. Do you see some sort of hypocrisy in that? <laughs> I think I've been clear about the fact that the Lord of the Rings films, which don't in any way do justice to the actual trilogy are nevertheless a generally faithful adaptation and representation. But so you said that it shouldn't be done. Yes, I agree. I, I, I did say that, and I do think that. But I'm just saying, if it's going to be done, that's but not... But you a, chastised me for wanting to read the books over watch movies. Well, chastising you is... Well, no, I mean, like, chastising you is one of my hobbies, first of all. And uh, running down Harry Potter is one of my other hobbies. So... Yes, I would rather watch the Lord of the Rings movies, which never should have been made, and I will never forgive Peter Jackson for what he did with The Hobbit, um, but uh, but I would rather watch those films, the, the Lord of the Rings films, than read the Harry Potter novels. So, so in, in brief, no repentance I'm whatsoever. basically impenitent yeah. on this point, yeah. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, pray for Joel's soul. <laughs> Can we start? Please? Yeah, that's fine. All right, I'm Joel. I'm Jacob. And this is the Tole Legge Podcast, where we talk about great books, how to read them, why you should read them, and in... start off uh get your reaction about something so okay. uh, those of our listening audience uh, viewers even should know that joel doesn't do social media so if you see tole lege stuff social media it's either myself or his son who helps us you know do all the filming and recording uh but for the most part twitter you know is my domain well i've been running these uh kind of surveys pitting great books authors or sometimes great books themselves against other great books and doing the whole only one can survive kind of scenario. So what I thought I'd do today, since you had, you probably haven't seen these even, uh, I'm going to share them with you and I'm going to get your reaction, what you, what you would have picked and then tell you what the survey result was okay. and you can kind of react to that. Sure. So, sure. all right. So the first one, uh, you know, only one can survive. I said, Virgil's Aeneid or Homer's Odyssey. Oh, I, you know, I feel like I should say the Aeneid just in terms of, the importance of that work, but I'm going to say the Odyssey just because I enjoy it so much. I okay. Just, I love okay. It. Well, the the uh, the overall vote, the 62% of the vote went to Homer's Odyssey. Okay. All right. So yeah. you at least have the fans. Probably agreement. more popular, maybe somewhat more accessible. Just probably, more people familiar with it. More exciting, more fast paced yeah. in some cases. Yeah. I mean, there's good stuff, obviously, For sure. in, yeah. in both. But uh, yeah. okay. Well, so that was one. Let's see what we got another one. Oh, I know this will 
this I'm actually really I'm not sure how you're gonna feel about this one. So, <laughs> so uh, Ender's Game versus Starship Troopers. Oh my! Uh, two books that every every young man should read and study. Um, boy, that's a hard that's a hard choice. But I'm gonna go with Starship Troopers for sure because of the emphasis that it places upon moral philosophy. I think the ideas are there in Ender's Game as well, and a lot of other good ideas in Ender's Game, but um, the ideas are more deliberately represented in Starship Troopers. I would agree with your take on that. However, 63% went towards Ender's Game on that one. But I think probably... It's just more well-known. That could be Russian bots as well. Right? <laughs> that, seems, that seems entirely plausible. Or it might be people who saw the Starship Troopers movies, which no one should no ever one should see. Watch, no um, and uh, And they made the judgment based upon comparison of movies. Yes. Because, yeah. never, never judge a book by its cover or by its or movie. Or by its movie. Yeah, that's fair. Yes. Okay. Um, let's see. How about this? Uh, we had... Oh, not that one. Here we go. Dracula... Versus Frankenstein. Oh, wow. Um, how would I pick between those two? Uh, I guess probably Frankenstein for the way in uh, both of them are reacting to the radical enlightenment. Uh, I'm I'm persuaded by a thesis that has been advanced by some some more recent authors that kind of the whole horror genre is a reaction to the Enlightenment project gone wild. And I think both of those novels definitely are. And so maybe Frankenstein, just for the way that it interacts with those ideas and creating the monster that kills kills the creator. Um, but but yeah, that's that's a hard question. Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, I would probably go with Dracula. Just I think probably just because um, I like the more positive spin on yep. dealing with it you know just personally like frankenstein's a hard read for me it's an important sure. read but i can't see i can't really even say i like the book to be right. honest right yeah. but i do like sure. dracula but anyway okay. uh so but they dracula won with 56 percent of the vote okay. on that one pretty close yeah, that's pretty close let me let me do two more real quick all right um now i, I picked two classical authors in fact uh maybe the the cornerstones you might say of the western world plato versus aristotle this doesn't sound like a good idea <laughs> You're going to like my next one even better. <laughs> um, oh, my. Oh, where do you begin? I mean, how would you, how would you choose between the two? Uh, it would depend very much, you know, if we were comparing specific works, that would make it much easier. I guess if you put me in a corner and put a gun to my head and say I have to pick one of the two, I'm going to pick Aristotle. Hmm. Um, I just think, you know, overall, there's just a lot more value uh, that the later Western tradition, the church, etc., um, has has found in Aristotle's kind of adaptation and revisions of Plato. But yeah, I love Plato too. Yeah, I like uh, Alfred North Whitehead's comment was that uh, Plato. Uh, how do you put it exactly? I'm gonna botch it now. But yeah, Plato was basically the cornerstone of philosophy. He wrote he wrote all of the. I don't know. How to, I can't remember how you put it, but he said that. Um, Aristotle wrote all the principal footnotes to Plato, basically, right? right? Yeah, yeah, I just I totally that. botched that yeah, quote. But I, either way, the point is, is... I remember the one you're talking there about. There is no Aristotle without Plato still, you know? True. But regardless, our fans went 50-50. They wow. couldn't pick either, right? Yeah, that's, that's hard. Uh, okay, so I tried to destroy Holmes with this last one. Okay. I mean, just tell you right now, I just... You know, this is like when Jesus says, I didn't come 
right to unite, but to, to bring sword, you right. know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I said C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien. What, what possessed you to even ask that question? I, I, I wanted to, <laughs> some men just want to see the world burn. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, <clears throat> So, uh, I, I would, if I could only take one of them with me, if I'm going to the desert Island, uh, I'm taking Lewis. Um, but, but I have to say that in terms of, uh, the gravitas of the fiction and the themes that are involved, it's, it's Tolkien hands down, uh, hands down. The issue is though, that, that C.S. Lewis did so much more Mm -hmm. than Tolkien in, in, in the spaces that we enjoy. And so if, you know, if you're asking me, can I only read Narnia or can I only read about Middle Earth? I'm going to take Middle Earth. Uh, but if you're saying, can I only read the body of literature that Lewis has left us or the body of literature that Tolkien has left us, I'm going to have to take Lewis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think that's fair. I think that's definitely what I would say as well. He's, he's, he wrote to fiction for children, fiction right. for adults, you know, blue collar, uh, defenses of the faith, yeah. academic work yeah i agree with that absolutely and our fans agree too with 68 percent going with lewis on that one and that one that one though i would say kind of like the earlier conversation about ender's game and starship troopers is do do the percentages there reflect the greater familiarity that people on twitter have with c.s lewis as opposed to tolkien because tolkien you know at, at least in terms of his popular literature there's not nearly as much of it and what he's left us is more people have probably seen the movie than have read the books, yeah, right? Right. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. So, yeah, I want to. I won't even ask you about this. I just tell you one one less travesty about all of this, right? Is that I did ask about Mark Twain and Herman Melville, and they picked Mark Twain, which was wrong. That was very wrong. Very very that was, wrong. By sixty eight percent, even that was bad. Yeah, I, shame on you. Either fans. either <laughs> that either that has to be attributed to Russian bots, or we have some subscribers on you on Twitter who uh, need to listen to the rest of our episodes <laughs> yeah. no like i like twain you know he's he's very a, quippy he's very you know humorous pithy yeah right? lacks that kind of depth though i think Why am i yeah no melville 100 percent. yeah all right well at least we're on the same page on that okay all right so what are we talking about today we are talking about lois lowry's the giver Yes. Which is actually the first, a lot of people don't know this, it's the first in a set of four books. The first in a set of four books. Um, so most people know The Giver if they know any of them. And in part, once again, because The Giver was made into a major motion picture. Um, and, you know, insofar as books to movies goes, it's it's closer than most are. Like, so there, you know, I like the movie okay. Uh, it, it certainly, as is always the case, lacks the depth of the book, right? Um, but yeah, this is a, is a phenomenal book. So what are you excited about in discussing this book? So I enjoy dystopian literature in general. I enjoy what I take to be Christian imagination in dystopian literature a lot. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, I think a lot of the best examples of that are not necessarily written by Christians or at least not by authors who are consciously writing as Christians. I don't know how to categorize uh, Lowry in, in that regard. I uh, don't know enough about about her, maybe. But um, Ray Bradbury is an example of someone who I would say is not an Orthodox Christian and writes some wonderful Christian imagination in terms of uh, uh, some of what he's left us. Uh, so I, I'm excited because of the way that this particular genre that's developed uh, allows us to introduce and contemplate some of these themes that would be much more difficult to uh, to communicate or to play with in a more traditional literary form. 
so I, I, I love this book. Uh, uh, we were talking uh, earlier today. Uh, you know, I've read it three times this year and uh, just really uh, enjoy it more each time I read it and am, am more struck by uh, how profound some of these ideas really are. It's, and yet it's very, very accessible. My, mm. my kids have read this book. My, my young children have enjoyed this book at an early age where you know that they're not getting everything out of it. Um, but, but nevertheless, it's, it's very accessible and much more accessible than some other dystopian uh, works. Yeah, so maybe before we jump into the book proper, uh, maybe we could define a little bit yeah. dystopian in case anybody's not even familiar with that concept. Um, and what are some other good examples of dystopian literature that that is popular? Well, do you, I mean, do you want to define dystopian, or do you? I mean, do you want me to? Uh, we, well, I would offer up a definition. I'll be curious to hear if, if you would agree with the yeah, way I put sure. it. Yeah, but uh, you know, dystopian uh, always uh, has some futuristic uh, element to it. So it's, it's usually picturing something uh, yet to come. Um, and it is typically put forth in terms of where society supposedly has reached a pinnacle. Uh, it, it has reached a place where all of their ideals have been fulfilled. And a lot of times, at least in a lot of the literature, things look really good at first. Mm -hmm. They they seem to be almost perfect, and it's just a little too good to be true, mm -hmm. right? And as the story evolves and it unravels, you kind of see the the ugly underbelly of of that society. Yeah. Now, there's probably some exceptions to thinking about it that way. What do you think? No, I think that's good. Uh, I, you know, <clears throat> uh, if you think about uh, uh, Sir Thomas More's uh, Utopia, right, which in Greek means no place, right? Yeah. Right. So Utopia is no place, right? It's not, there, there's not really there a is place. No perfect world. You think about dystopian literature, right? So this this uh, topos in Greek is is place, right? Mm. And and it's a disordered place. And so I think you're right. It, it typically portrays a society that is, if not future of the modern reader, it's future from the standpoint of the writer, right? And, and kind of this idealized society, this realized eschatology. Society has reached this organized or somehow perfected form, and yet as you begin to look closely at it, you realize something, something's wrong. Something's off this it maybe it's almost too perfect mm -hmm. or it has elements of you know this uh, totalitarianism and uh, you know whatever whatever has had to be done to get human society to this point that's the big question right yeah. is what what was sacrificed along the always. way to get here that's always, always a central question right? yes and that's what again whether it is a work of conscious christian dystopian imagination or kind of implicit christian imagination or anti-christian dystopian literature um in in every case that's the question is what did we give up in preference for whatever this society has has prized has valued um, so you, you mentioned, you know, other types of dystopian literature, because this really is a kind of a modern genre and, and a very modern form. Um, you think about the classic works, uh, um, uh, 1984, right, by George Orwell, uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Uh, yeah, you could think about uh, some others. I mentioned Ray Bradbury a moment ago. So Fahrenheit 451 is one of my favorite uh, works of dystopian literature. And even a more contemporary example, I think, would be uh, Susan Collins' The Hunger Games, right. which is definitely a, a dystopian trilogy. Right? Yeah, the interesting thing about that um, is that it's queued up from the, the get-go 
to show something's wrong. Yes. You know? Yes. So <clears throat> the, the, the advantage only goes to a very minority, Correct. obviously, Correct. from the outset in that one. Yes. So, but, yes. But it is still, otherwise, I think it fits the genre. Yeah, and, and I think she's drawing on, uh, you know, some earlier forms. Uh, she's certainly drawing on the short story The Lottery, for example. Uh, but even in 1984, you have got the prots, right, the proletariats who live kind of on the outskirts of the community, in the slums, in the ghetto, uh, as opposed to the true citizens of the city. Um, and, and in Brave New World, you've also got these outlying sectors on the reservations and, and kind of the pariahs. So I think there is precedent for that kind of two-tiered system. In fact, I would argue that maybe a uh, some kind of a caste system is almost always found in some way, shape, or form in dystopian literature. Yeah, that's interesting. I know one of the upcoming episodes we're planning to do is going to be The Time Machine. Yes. And Time Machine definitely, I think it fits into this dystopian yeah, notion as good, well in its own thought, way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which we won't give away too much right now because right. we're going to do a whole episode on that. But, stay tuned. But just stay tuned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we can turn to the book proper then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, The Giver by Lois Lowry, again, as Jacob mentioned, is the first of four. This is a book that Jacob absolutely loves. I I, I love it, but I'm, I'm continuing to grow in my appreciation of it. And really what I want to do in this episode is largely just kind of tee you up and then you know just throw you some softballs underhand but but it it concerns a young man whose name is Jonas and uh, the family that he is placed in and the role that he is called to in society as he finds it let me begin by just kind of reading excerpts and, and and let me say at the beginning of this episode we are only reading excerpts of this book you need to read the book there are going to be some spoilers because we don't know how to talk about the book without giving certain things away. Mm -hmm. But I think we're probably going to stay away from kind of the, the real climax of this book, and we're not even going to really touch or preview anything in the next three books. So uh, you're only getting bits and pieces, and, and the goal is to whet your appetite uh, so that you get the book, or if you've read the book before, to say, wow, I haven't read that in a while, or I don't remember some of, seeing some of those things, let me go back and read it again, because we really believe that great books are meant to be reread. Yeah, I mean, I'm on my, I think, fifth or sixth reading of this book just recently, and every single time I'm seeing connections I didn't see before. I'm also starting to make a lot more literary connections to other works that of ideas and themes that she's tying into. So, And in case I forget to mention at the end of the episode, we might point out that on your substack, your personal great book substack, you are in the process of uploading the study guides for your students and for other classical learners uh, going through this book. Yeah. So that's another resource that people might look at as they are... Uh, studying reading for the first time or studying in more detail yeah. this book let me let me begin where the book begins with the very first page and, and i'm going to skip around a good bit today the text begins in this way it was almost december and jonas was beginning to be frightened no wrong word jonas thought frightened meant that deep sickening feeling of something terrible about to happen Thinking still as he wheeled his bike into its narrow port beside the door, he realized that frightened was the wrong word to describe his feelings now that December was almost here. It was too strong an adjective. He had waited a long time for this special December. Now that it was almost upon him, he wasn't frightened, but he was eager, he decided. He was eager for it to come, and he was excited, certainly. All of the Elevens were excited about the event that would be coming so soon. But there was a little shudder of nervousness when he thought about it, about what might happen 
apprehensive, Jonas decided. That's what I am. At the very beginning of the book, you're seeing an 11-year-old boy going through an, a profoundly introspective mm-hmm. and analytical processing of his feelings without really being aware of the categories of feelings and, and processing that linguistically through yeah. the words that he's using in his own mind to describe how he's feeling. Yeah, It's almost a... <clears throat> For my Star Trek fans here, it's a Vulcan-like yep. game, right? Yep. It's a, you know, it's just trying to, what is the best lexical definition fitting with which word, you know? I mean, and, and so um, it's interesting, and, and it, in that along with a number of other things in the book, when you start reading this book for the first time, one of the things I would tee you up for and kind of encourage you to do is just say, just look for weird stuff, you know, like what. <clears throat> What just doesn't scan right when you're reading? Like, just that just doesn't seem normal. That right. just doesn't fit. Why is it that way? Yes. Why why are they using that particular terminology? Uh, that's a great place to start with this book. Is just say, look for something that seems odd. And really, any kind of dystopian literature. Yeah. Because again, you're looking for it like uh, this perfect society, this idealized human society. But but that corner isn't straight, right? That that line is crooked and. Wh- why? What, I, maybe I can't put my finger on it at first, but something's off. Something's wrong. And there's a lot like that in the very first few chapters of this book. So uh, in the first chapter, uh, Jonas goes home and uh, at the dinner table with the family, his father, his mother, his sister, there is kind of this evening talk therapy session where they are all supposed to talk about their feelings that they had that day. Skipping ahead just a little bit, Jonas listened politely, though not very attentively, while his father took his turn, describing a feeling of worry that he'd had that day at work, a concern about one of the new children who wasn't doing well. Jonas's father's title was nurturer. He and the other nurturers were responsible for all the physical and emotional needs of every new child during its earliest life. It was a very important job, Jonas knew, but it wasn't one that interested him much. What gender is it? Lily asked. Male, father said. He's a sweet little male with a lovely disposition, but he isn't growing as fast as he should, and he doesn't sleep soundly. We have him in the extra care section for supplementary nurturing, but the committee's beginning to talk about releasing him. Oh no, mother murmured sympathetically. I know how sad that must make you feel. Jonas and Lily both nodded sympathetically as well. Release of new children was always sad because they hadn't had a chance to enjoy life within the community yet, and they hadn't done anything wrong. There were only two occasions of release which were not punishment. Release of the elderly, which was a time of celebration for a life well and fully lived, and release of a new child, which always brought a sense of what could we have done. This was especially troubling for the nurturers, like Father, who felt that they had failed somehow, but it happened very rarely. They had heard Father complain about the night crew before. It was a lesser job, night crew nurturing, assigned to those who lacked the interest or skills or insight for the more vital jobs of the daytime hours. Most of the people on the night crew had not even been given spouses because they lacked, somehow, the essential capacity to connect to others which was required for the creation of a family unit. Now, that, that's a long section, yeah. and, and I skipped around a little bit in that section, but uh, as they're having this evening talk therapy, you talk about observing things that are strange. It's like every other line 
there's some kind of weirdness mm-hmm. being described. Like, so the father in this family, his title, what does that even mean? Like, he didn't say his job. He said his title mm-hmm. is nurturer. Well, what are the nurturers? They're responsible for all the new children, right? Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, you, you, you're not looking at the text right now, but Lowry runs that together, right? right. It's not new yeah. children. It's, it's a term. It's new children, yeah. right? Yeah, it's a stipulated term in this society. And then they've got a... a a, a, a little one that's not doing well and the, the children don't ask what is his name they ask what is his gender <laughs> they refer to him as an it yeah. right yeah there's no use of the term boy or girl right in the entire book right isn't that fascinating <laughs> and so then the father says well because he's not doing well we're the committee the co- committee like where's his kid's yeah. parents what, where's his kid what committee what committee <laughs> right and this, again when you're reading great literature whether it's scripture whether it's the classics whether it's a modern i mean this is written in what 1993 right? right if it's a modern work but it's a really thoughtful substantive work uh you want to be looking for things that just seem out of place hmm. And asking these kinds of interpretive questions. So, so just setting this, a few things up for you. That, you know, we hear about the the night crew, and they're not given spouses because they can't connect with people relationally. I mean, Jacob, what what are we supposed to make of this talk therapy at the dinner table? Yeah, well, the, one of the things that comes most to mind, uh, connecting all of these odd dots together, <clears throat> is some someone or some group of someone's has so much power yep. that, you know, and that this, this family unit, yes. not necessarily a family, this right. family unit, right. Yes. Um, is just part of a, 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 they're a cog in a system, um, and that they don't understand, yes. right. That there, there are things going on that they're, they're, they're willingly a part of There doesn't, at this point, there seems to be no rebellion against the rules of the society or anything like that. Um, but there's, I don't even know, it's hard to put words to, really, uh, without giving a, a whole lot away. But just the concept of uh, release that you mentioned. Yes. Uh, release. There are only two reasons for release that are not punishment. Yeah. So and release can be a punishment. Evidently. First and foremost. Evidently, it's normally a punishment. Right. Well, and I think you, you think about the word release. I mean, how do we typically use that word? Well, yeah. we, we let go of something. Okay, so I, I release my grip on my pen and it falls to the ground, right? right? Or, um, and then and another central term in, in this book, and, and it's very evident in the first few chapters, is the community. Yes. So release from the community. It, this is, seems like some sort of expulsion, maybe, right? Um, but, you know, why, what do you, how are you going to release a, a newborn? Right. What does that mean? Uh, and, and why are you comparing a release of a newborn to a release of an elderly person to a release that can be punishment under ordinary circumstances? I mean, very quickly you're realizing this is some kind of euphemism. Mm. This is a stipulated term that is standing in the place of something that we, for whatever reason, are not actually describing or not actually naming. Yeah. We're going to use this term instead because it's more polite, it's more acceptable, but, but if release is punishment or something we do to elderly people or something we do to newborns that are failing to thrive, we're getting some idea that this is a polite term that's encompassing something that could be quite horrifying yeah. to, to put all of that in the same basket. Yeah, but I think it's important to note that at least, at least Jonas 
and his sister Lily, right? And many in the community, uh, they don't they don't know what it is either. No, that's exactly right, and that uh, comes out in the book. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there's a very dramatic chapter in which Jonas is going to be confronted with the reality of what release is. We're not going to read from that chapter today, but you need to read the book to see that chapter because it's a very powerful, very powerful moment. Um, and, and, you know, it, it raises the point that whoever controls the dictionary controls the society, mm. controls the conversation. If I can determine the terms by which certain things are going to be discussed, I've, I've already, I'm, I'm 80% of the way to winning the argument. Yeah. And you talk about the sense of this kind of authoritarianism that's not explicit in this conversation and yet is implicit in every part of this conversation. And just to underline that, let me go to, to the very next part where just briefly it says two children, one male, one female to each family unit. It was written very clearly in the rules. Yeah, the rules. The, uh, <laughs> I'd have to look it up. I need to look it up uh, or do a count or something like that. But I've been uh, marking in my book every time the word rule or the rules uh, is stated. And, you know, it's my entire book is just red. Over and just, over it's and everywhere, over. right? Yes. This society is governed to the smallest detail by the rules, right? right. Now, interestingly, there are some rules that are not for everybody also. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are levels of rules and we'll get more of that more in a little bit. In but. fact, in fact, what we're, we're, we're coming to very quickly is the idea that each job, which they don't even call it job, their title, right? Yeah, but, it, right. but it's the role that they have in the society. Each one is given a, a specific set of rules corresponding to that title. Yeah. So you talk about a caste system. Well, they right? even call it, they call it assignment. Yes. Right. Yes. At the ceremony as well. Right. Right. So in the second chapter, we go on. You know, Jonas's father finally said, every December was exciting to me when I was young, and it has been for you and Lily too, I'm sure. Each December brings such changes. Jonas nodded. He could remember the Decembers back to when he had become, well, probably a four. The earlier ones were lost to him, but he observed them each year, and he remembered Lily's earliest Decembers. He remembered when his family received Lily, the day she was named, the day that she had become a one. The ceremony for the ones was always noisy and fun. Each December, all the new children born in the previous year turned one. One at a time. There were always 50 in each year's group, if none had been released. They had been brought to the stage by the nurturers who had cared for them since birth. Some were already walking, wobbly on their unsteady legs. Others were no more than a few days old, wrapped in blankets held by their nurturers. I enjoy the naming. Jonas said. His mother agreed, smiling. The year we got Lily, we knew, of course, that we'd receive our female because we'd made our application and been approved, but I'd been wondering and wondering what her name would be. I could have sneaked a look at the list prior to the ceremony, Father confided. The committee always makes the list in advance, and it's right there in the office at the nurturing center. As a matter of fact, he went on, I feel a little guilty about this, but I did go in this afternoon and look to see if this year's naming list had been made yet. It was right there in the office, and I looked up number 36. That's the little guy I've been concerned about, because it occurred to me that it might enhance his nurturing if I could call him by a name, just privately, of course, when no one else is around. It just gets weirder and weirder. Yeah, it just gets weirder, yeah. And there's there's so much to <clears throat> to try to draw out of that. I mean... Obviously, you're you're applying for children, 
where are the children coming from? Because they're not coming from the family unit. Correct. So they are... Yeah, where the, are they coming the from, right? The stork is bringing them yeah, because exactly. nothing's happening between mom and dad. But the stork can't even fly to your house until you fill out some forms. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Right. And then they're, you know, carefully examined and see if you're, you know, the right fit for a child. Everybody has the same birthday. <clears throat> Everybody who's born in the previous year well, turns one at the ceremony. Yeah, exactly. So they don't, I mean, in, in one sense, they don't have they the don't same have birthday, birthdays, right? So right. everybody... Everybody becomes a one yes. at the same time, yes. but some of the ones are actually about a year old, and some of them may be only a few months a few old. Months old. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, I, we'll get to it in a little bit, probably more, but there's this idea of trying to smooth out differences. Correct. Uh, and so, in, in every way they can, yes, they're trying to make everybody the same. So, we wouldn't say, oh, I'm six months, you're eight months, I'm, you know, that, that child is, or whatever, right? You're saying, no. They're all ones, and then they're all twos, and then they're all threes. Sameness. 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 Key idea yeah. in the book. By the way, the little guy's name is Gabriel, mm. or will be Gabriel, provided he thrives. Provided he doesn't get released. Exactly. Right? Which, I, before we move on, though. Yeah. yeah so, um, this concept, too, also of, of the value or importance of names. Yeah. So, there's. I think I see something in uh, Father that's a little odd for their community so um the fact that he actually realizes that giving the child a name or at least using the child's uh, you know soon to be name already might benefit him in some way right seems to communicate something that that name has power right that name is meaningful which doesn't necessarily fit in some ways with everything else about the society society, that they're living right yeah well and notice that father says he feels guilty Mm-hmm. about going and looking for that name and using that name when the name has not actually been conferred and yet he's got this intuitive sense as a nurturer mm-hmm. that this might help this child. Yeah, it's a it's a powerful uh, inconsistency within his society, right? right? Uh, skipping ahead in the same conversation, same chapter, uh, when I was in 11, his father said now, as you are, Jonas, I was very impatient, waiting for the ceremony of 12. It's a long two days. I remember that I enjoyed the ones, as I always do, but that I didn't pay much attention to the other ceremonies except for my sister's. She became a nine that year and got her bicycle. I'd been teaching her to ride mine, even though technically I wasn't supposed to. Jonas laughed. It was one of the few rules that was not taken very seriously and was almost always broken. The children all received their bicycles at nine. They were not allowed to ride bicycles before then. But almost always, the older brothers and sisters had secretly taught the younger ones. Jonas had been thinking already about teaching Lily. There was talk about changing the rule and giving the bicycles at an earlier age. A committee was studying the idea. When something went to a committee for study, the people always joked about it. They said that the committee members would become elders by the time the rule change was made. Rules were very hard to change. Sometimes, if it was a very important rule, unlike the one governing the age for bicycles, it would have to go eventually to the receiver for a decision. The receiver was the most important elder. Jonas had never even seen him that he knew of. Someone in a position of such importance lived and worked alone. 
but the committee would never bother the receiver with a question about bicycles. They would simply fret and argue about it themselves for years until the citizens forgot that it had ever gone to them for study. Yeah, probably the most disturbing part about what you just read yeah. is it gives me flashbacks to when I was a Southern Baptist, all the committees. Um, I was actually going to make a Presbyterian joke about it. So. Oh, no. I didn't know. I didn't escape it. That's what you're trying to say. But, but uh, no, yeah, it is. It's just funny. It's this idea of uh, everything's got a committee. Death committee have committee. committees, you know, and most of those committees, there's, there's so, uh, they, things get so tied up there like it doesn't change. Right, right. right. Um, but we do, we do get a mention here of uh, someone interesting, the receiver. He's going to be very important yeah. in the book. Um, the, the idea of hierarchy, the idea of authority, the idea of committees governing everything, the idea of rules ordering society, the idea of saneness. Everybody receives a bicycle at nine. But the idea that there are certain rules that are written in stone mm-hmm. and there are certain rules that the whole community is looking the other way uh, like, you're not allowed to ride a bicycle before the age of nine, but if your older brother or sister is teaching you how to ride their bike yeah. in preparation for the ceremony of nine, that's that's okay. Yeah. Well, and even the, the rule that Father broke in, in looking up yes. Gabriel's name. Yes. And, by the way, we didn't mention, but, you know, he's he's married to the one that who enforces the rules, the, the Department of Justice, exactly. right? Exactly. Uh, but she's not upset by that. That's right. Yeah, she's, like, okay with she's that. She's amused. Yeah. yeah exactly. 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 Yeah. Just a little bit later in the same chapter. But Jonas, let me warn you about something that may not have occurred to you. I know I didn't think about it until after my ceremony of 12. What's that? Well, it's the last of the ceremonies, as you know. After 12, age isn't important. Most of us even lose track of how old we are as time passes, though the information is in the Hall of Open Records and we could go and look it up if we wanted to. What's important is the preparation for adult life and the training you'll receive in your assignments. I know that, Jonas said. Everyone knows that. But it means, his mother went on, that you'll move into a new group, and each of your friends will. You'll no longer be spending your time with your group of 11s. After the ceremony of 12, you'll be with your assignment group, with those in training. No more volunteer hours. No more recreation hours, so your friends will no longer be as close. Hmm. So now we're getting an idea of what this ceremony of 12 is, right? Hmm. The year that this one group of children who were all born in the same calendar year, they're all turning 12 the same day. Right. And there's this ceremony where when they become 12, they're given their assignment. Mm -hmm. And their whole life changes Mm -hmm. radically. And And is set for them. Exactly. Right. Unchangeably. This, yeah. This is who you are, are and will be until you're released. Until you're released. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it changes who you hang out with. It changes how you spend your time. And beyond that, because there are no more age ceremonies, well, again, there are no birthdays, so your age is really just irrelevant. Yeah. You're an adult at 12. You've received your assignment. That now defines the rest of your life until you are too old to perform that role anymore. Yeah, there is something interesting that I wouldn't mind mentioning too here. Um, so each each year of childhood, there are different markers. So the, this the ceremony, um, there's two days every year in the community that are that are holidays. Everybody in the community gets to attend. They they take a break from normal functions of the society, 
and they all attend the ceremony and they go through the the ones where the the, the new children are placed into family units they you know on and all on the way up to 12 being the kind of crescendo at the end of that second day uh, but it is interesting so you you have things like um, receiving your bike at nine but you also uh, I can't remember the age the age range but you know they go from having uh, button up in the back jackets so you have to learn to depend on others to help you to front facing button jackets so you learn independence and and even says that the bicycle is a, is a powerful emblem of of launching out into the world away from the, the safety of your family unit you know so you know some of that's interesting and it's not necessarily even all bad like so that's what we kind of talked about earlier you know it's, i mean in some ways i've read that and thought you know you almost want to say maybe we should think more about uh, the symbolism, symbolism of, rites of, of, of rites of passage. Exactly. Like maybe we don't actually have enough of that, even if we would do it for different reasons or or something like that. Yeah. Now this is a point that I wanted us to get to today. Is you know the the symbolism of these rituals and how the rituals are communicating the values of the society. And not all of the values are bad. Some of them are, are very good. Some of them, which have gotten really weird and inappropriate, uh, started with kind of a good idea, and that comes across clearly in the book. You can, you can kind of see why would they choose to be where they are. Well, because they valued certain things over other things. But the idea of having social rituals to communicate these ideas and to confer these privileges upon members of the community, that, that's something that I think is woven into the very fabric of creation. Mm -hmm. I think that is the, the rhythm, uh, the liturgy, the sacramentology of the Christian church. And I think even non-Christians have the very same things Absolutely. in their social circles, right, right? in yeah. the communities that they build. Yeah, I mean, I think of in scripture. I think of things like you know, circumcision on the eighth day right. to, you know, the, the boy Jesus at 12 for the first time getting to, to go with his family to the, the celebration. Correct. You know, there, there are these markers that, that note things are changing. You, yes. We expect more out of you, but there's more given to you also. And, yes. and to acknowledge that's a good thing. That's right. Uh, you mentioned the, the uh, ceremony of the nines where all of the children in that age group uh, receive a bicycle, and you might be wondering, you know, why, why isn't there a ceremony of the 16 so that everybody can get a driver's <laughs> license in a car? But it's because at 12, you're an adult, and everybody rides bicycles. That's right. There's nothing else, there, Well, there, there are, like, they mentioned a bus. They, they do they, mention the transportation children, Yeah, the children later. take buses uh, yeah. occasionally and visit uh, neighboring communities occasionally. Yes. Um, there are aircraft. Right. We right. hear about we, planes. Yeah, so it, this is not an... It's not that this society is not advanced in, in a certain sense of their technological capabilities. But nobody has a car. Right. There's no personal ownership right. of that kind of technology. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Skipping ahead to chapter three, we have an, another little section on Gabriel, that young baby that's failing to thrive. And uh, father brings him home from the nurturing center. And this is how it begins. Oh, look, Lily squealed in delight. Isn't he cute? Look how tiny he is. And he has funny eyes like yours, Jonas. Jonas glared at her. He didn't like it that she had mentioned his eyes. He waited for his father to chastise Lily, but father was busy unstrapping the carrying basket from the back of his bicycle. Jonas walked over to look. It was the first thing Jonas noticed as he looked at the new child peering up curiously from the basket, the pale eyes. 
Almost every citizen in the community had dark eyes. His parents did, and Lily did, and so did all of his group members and friends. But there were a few exceptions. Jonas himself and a female five who he had noticed had the different lighter eyes. No one mentioned such things. It was not a rule, but was considered rude to call attention to things that were unsettling or different about individuals. Lily, he decided, would have to learn that soon, or she would be called in for chastisement because of her insensitive chatter. Mirrors were rare in the community. They weren't forbidden, but there was no real need of them, and Jonas had simply never bothered to look at himself very often, even when he found himself in a location where a mirror existed. Now, seeing the new child and its expression, he was reminded that the light eyes were not only a rarity, but gave the one who had them a certain look. What was it? Depth, he decided as if one were looking into the clear water of the river, down to the bottom, where things might lurk which hadn't been discovered yet. He felt self-conscious, realizing that he, too, had that look. This seems to me like a really important passage. Yes, there's there's a, a f- intentional foreshadowing yeah. in this. Um, the, the depth which he describes, being able to look into the eyes of this child, and knowing that he himself has those same eyes... Um, is is an, a hint, is an indicator. And the fact that they're so rare, by the way, that have these eyes, very, very few people in the community have these kind of eyes. Uh, this is a hint that that same depth in which you can see into them, they have that same ability to look more deeply into things around them. Yes, yes. And one of the things that's going to come up at his Ceremony of the Twelve is the question of seeing beyond, yes. which we're about to see in, a, in another passage. And, and I think you're right, this is a foreshadowing that there is a connection between Jonas and Gabriel mm-hmm. and some other few members of the society that is not shared universally. And the idea of being able to see clearly through the river, down into the bottom, and perceive what others have not discovered really is a powerful way of kind of kind of a powerful analogy for what is going to happen in this story and what Jonas's role is going to prove to be, right? Yeah. It's also interesting uh, for, for maybe a less substantial reason, but because it's bringing up the fact that these family units are not ethnically organized. Hmm. They're certainly not biologically uh, connected to one another because the children are delivered after an application process. But there's no ethnicity that's necessarily connecting them because you're not seeing the same genetic traits. I think you're you're having features described here that are not just you know one parent having green eyes and the other you know the child having blue eyes, but but really uh, features that are strongly connected to other kinds of people, right? right? And yet they're all being assimilated into the sameness, and yet in the midst of sameness. There are certain differences that can't be denied that are inevitably going to break through. Yes. And I think that's one of the themes you're going to see. And I think I'll take a moment just to uh, note something. We're not going to talk about the other books in the series for the most part, but um, the things that come up in The Giver having to do with these kind of artificial families. Uh, these children are coming from somewhere, but a committee is deciding how to, how to organize them into family units. And, uh, as I, you know, as I've read this numerous times now, um, you know, every time I read it, I, I, I just think about, well, how, where do these children really come from? We learn more about it, but, but 
that if you think about how that would actually come about in the society and the people who are producing these children and their stories, well, the fourth book really comes back to that with a vengeance. And, and I just can't recommend, I mean, you need to read the books in order. <laughs> you need to read all four books and don't skip to the end. That would be a great sin, which we've talked about in prior podcasts. But regardless... A completely different set of books, by the way. <laughs> regardless, um, what Lois Lowry does in that final insula- installation f- comes full circle. And it's super important. Yes. It's just really good. Excellent. There are probably a couple of other things we need to pick up before we get to this very important ceremony of the 12. And okay. I'm going to just briefly touch on these and skip. I, I told Jacob as we were prepping this episode, I've marked way too much because yeah. there's just so much that we love in this book. But I think these two, the apple and the dream, have to be touched on before we get to the ceremony of the 12. So uh, the apple uh, incident refers to... A moment where Jonas begins to see differently. Something. Yeah. Can't describe it. So here's a portion of it. It had happened during the recreation period when he had been playing with Asher. Jonas had casually picked up an apple from the basket where the snacks were kept and had thrown it to his friend. Asher had thrown it back and they had begun a simple game of catch. There had been nothing special about it. It was an activity that he had performed countless times. Throw, catch, throw, catch. It was effortless for Jonas and even boring, although Asher enjoyed it. And playing catch was a required activity for Asher because it would improve his hand-eye coordination, which was not up to standards. But suddenly, Jonas had noticed, following the path of the apple through the air with his eyes, that the piece of fruit had, well, this was the part that he couldn't adequately understand. The apple had changed. Just for an instant, it had changed in midair, he remembered. Then it was in his hand, and he looked at it carefully, but it was the same apple, unchanged. The same size and shape, a perfect sphere, the same nondescript shade, about the same shade as his own tunic. Yeah, this is such a fascinating thing. I I love what she does here, Um, and it reminds me of another conversation um, having to do with, we talk about, you know, one-dimensional, two-dimensional, three-dimensional, and what would a fourth dimension be, right? So we all have uh, experience with the, all three dimensions, uh, but if there's a fourth dimension, how how would we even try to experience that? Well, what he's experiencing is something kind of akin to that. You know, in his world, all there is is size mm-hmm. and shape. But what would we normally say that there should be there also, right? But isn't. But isn't there? And and he has caught glimpses of this other thing. But he's actually without the capacity, he's without the vocabulary that's so important to him and everybody in the community, he's lacking the ability to describe this experience. Um, And how often, really when we're learning things, how often do we feel that way um, when when you come up against something completely new and you just say, I'm on to something, but I can't can't quite wrap my fingers around it. Uh, There's nothing more glorious than actually being able to wrap your hands around that thing that you're right on the cusp of right yes but but this this is something this is weird whoever who i i've mentioned this before whoever controls the dictionary (laughs) wins the debate controls the society right uh because if you don't have a word to be able to express to describe what you are experiencing Mm -hmm. what you are feeling well then you are without the ability to even understand 
what it is. You yeah. can you can feel it at some intuitive level. You can experience it at some sensory level, but you can't understand it unless you can articulate. Language is inevitable. Uh, you can't you can't understand it until you can express it in some way to yourself or to another person, and that's going to require words. That's yeah. going to require some kind of verbalization, vocalization. Uh, that acts as a placeholder for expressing the reality that you are experiencing. Yeah. That's why questions today, like, what is a woman? Kind of an important question. Kind of an important question. Yeah. And being able to clearly communicate that idea and having that be an immutable truth, an right. immutable idea, a non-changing idea. Um, and But, yeah, we're, we're redefining so many things today. Yes. Um, and, and I would argue we were... We, using that word loosely, but we are redefining words in pursuit of a certain utopian ideal. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there are there are those who are pushing for their own version of utopia right That's now. That's right. That's right. And it ends in no place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The dream is the other uh, portion that I think we need to touch on. Um, and, and I'm going to read a little bit of a longer section here, skipping, skipping around a, a little bit. Uh, in order to understand part of this conversation, you have to know that all of the children prior to the ceremony of twelves are required to do a certain number of volunteer hours. In fact, you can't receive your assignment unless you do a certain number of volunteer hours. That can happen at many different places, many different centers in the community. Uh, but one of the places that Jonas and his friends volunteer is in the houses of the old. And one of the ways that they volunteer is by actually bathing the elderly who are not able physically to bathe themselves. And that kind of gives rise to this conversation. Uh, just as there is a evening talk therapy about feelings at the dinner table at the end of the day, similarly at the breakfast table every morning, there is talk therapy, or maybe we would say a kind of a kind of a, a coming to terms, you know, forcible transparency about dreams. Mm -hmm. Did you dream last night? What did you dream? Tell us all about it, and then we're going to tell you how you ought to think about it and feel about it. It's a rule. It's a rule. It's a rule that you have to tell yeah, your dream. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, Jonas has a dream, and he is sharing this with his family. And in the dream, he has... The, the you know he's he's back in the houses of the old he's back in the bathroom but but now it's not an elderly person but rather one of his classmates a young lady a young girl that he's friends with and beginning to be attracted to without knowing that that's actually what's happening that in his dream he wants to put in the bathtub mm -hmm. and bathe her right and so father and Lily, the sister, leave and go to school and go to work. And mother stays behind to educate Jonas how he's supposed to think about this. Jonas, she said with a smile, the feeling you described as the wanting, it was your first stirrings. Father and I have been expecting it to happen to you. It happens to everyone. It happened to father when he was your age and it happened to me. It will happen someday to Lily. And very often, Mother added, it begins with a dream. Stirrings. He had heard the word before. He remembered that there was a reference to the stirrings in the Book of Rules, though he didn't remember what it said. And now and then, the speaker mentioned it. Attention, a reminder that stirrings must be reported in order for treatment to take place. 
He had always ignored that announcement because he didn't understand it and it had never seemed to apply to him in any way. He ignored, as most citizens did, many of the commands and reminders read by the speaker. Do I have to report it? He asked his mother. She laughed. You did, in the dream telling. That's enough. But what about the treatment? The speaker says that treatment must take place. Jonas felt miserable. Just when the ceremony was about to happen, his ceremony of twelve, would he have to go away someplace for treatment just because of a stupid dream? But his mother laughed again in a reassuring, affectionate way. No, no, she said. It's just the pills. You're ready for the pills, that's all. That's the treatment for stirrings. Jonas brightened. He knew about the pills. His parents both took them uh, each morning, and some of his friends did, he knew. Now, he swallowed the small pill that his mother handed him. That's all, he asked. That's all, she replied, returning the bottle to the cupboard. But you mustn't forget. I'll remind you for the first weeks, but then you must do it on your own. If you forget, the stirrings will come back. The dreams of stirrings will come back. Sometimes the dosage must be adjusted. How long will I have to take them? Until you enter the house of the old, she explained. All of your adult life. But it becomes routine. After a while, you won't even pay much attention to it. Pedaling rapidly down the path, Jonas felt oddly proud to have joined those who took the pills. For a moment, though, he remembered the dream again. The dream had felt pleasurable. Though the feelings were confused, he thought that he had liked the feelings that his mother had called stirrings. He remembered that upon waking, he had wanted to feel the stirrings again. Then, in the same way that his own dwelling slipped away behind him as he rounded a corner on his bicycle, the dream slipped away from his thoughts. Very briefly, a little guiltily, he tried to grasp it back, but the feelings had disappeared. The stirrings were gone. Maybe yeah. you should say something about the criticisms that the book sometimes I was thinking about that section. myself, yeah. So uh, she comments herself in, I think it might have been her acceptance speech for the Newbery uh, Medal that she won for this book, but I've read somewhere from her at least, talking about uh, mail that she received. <laughs> and I remember specifically one, one uh, person wrote her to tell her that she needs Jesus, you know. Mm. Um, uh, but because you know she's apparently they've never had the stirrings yeah they've right no yeah all their exactly life. um but you know i mean we just like let's just deal with this as it is i mean she's she is tackling something very human which is a sexual attraction and and that there's actually a god-blessed thing called sexual attraction mm -hmm. now now whether jonas's uh dream and what he dreamed about was necessarily right is another question but just the pure fact of uh, being attracted to the opposite sex, right? That is a normal part of, of human development, and, uh, and God made us to experience that. Uh, and yet this society, this community, does not allow that. Correct. Uh, and they have medication for that. Correct. And it note, noteworthy, everybody's on that medication once they have these stirrings. Mom and dad are too, or mother and father are too, Right. right? Which again, well, the children don't come from mother and father. Children are manufactured. Families are manufactured. They are carefully manufactured and, and monitored. You and, order them you know, on Amazon. You, pretty much, right? Basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a red tape Amazon. <laughs> yes. 
And if I, you know, if I could <laughs> speak to this just as a pastor for a minute, yeah, uh, yeah, this is describing something completely normal, completely natural, and it's doing so in a very tactful, tasteful, yeah. Yeah. careful way. There is nothing crude. There's nothing vulgar. Right. Uh, we've all seen these kinds of things discussed in literature or in film in very highly inappropriate ways. Sure. I'm not suggesting that just because sexual attraction is natural that therefore it's fair game to explore that in whatever yeah, ways way an want author to. wants yeah. to. No, this is done in such a in such a subtle careful manner that you could give this book to a young child they're not even going to understand this section That's correct. Uh, but it's also not i don't think going to inflame an adolescent who's gone through or is going through the very same experience no, it's not descriptive in that way not and, at all you know as a, as a classical christian educator uh, who's taught through this book in a classroom with ranging from 12 to 14 year olds you know um, well i'm thankful for books like this right that give us an opportunity to think as Christians yes. about human sexuality yes. and to go to the word of God yes. and, and, and to consider what God has to say about human sexuality uh, because it is part of who we are. Right. And so one of the, one of the mistakes that, that various parts of the church have made at times is to be uh, silly prudish mm -hmm. about sexuality and, and, and cause some sort of strange kind of repression that goes on that, normally either creates Pharisees or licentious behavior in the end, right? right? Uh, and so what we want to do is remember that, you know, Song of Solomon is in our Bible. Yeah. <laughs> we want to remember that in the beginning they were naked and not ashamed, yeah. right? And, and be able to talk about that. And so I'm, I'm thankful for this part of the book, even though uh, with, you know, with seventh and eighth grade students, left, I mean, yeah, it's a little awkward, sure. you know? But it, it actually is ground for very fruitful conversation. Well, and we're talking about other types of dystopian literature at the beginning of the episode, not all of which handled this with nearly <laughs> as much tact uh, or care. Yeah. Um, I mean, we mentioned Brave New World. Yeah. That, that, book, that book's not as explicit as it would be if it were written today, right. for sure, but yeah. uh, it's a lot more explicit it's than anything more It's definitely here. more disturbing. It's very disturbing, and it is unfortunately more descriptive. And, and 1984 has got that material in it, too. And so, uh, you know, you, we need to realize that these are ideas that are important in describing disordered societies. One of the things that has to be ordered mm -hmm are the feelings and the arousal and the attraction. And there are different ways that dystopian literature explores that. Brave New World envisions a, a society in which everyone is just basically turned into a sexual animal mm -hmm. and then turned loose, right? Um, okay, so that's one way of a society uh, trying to bring a people into slavery by their lusts. Yeah. Well, the giver is exploring, trying to do the same thing in the opposite way. Correct. Is to say, let's medicate them so that they don't feel any sexual desire at all, and thereby we can bring them into bondage. Yeah, yeah and I think, you know, uh, when you think about some a book like C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, and he explores, um, you know, the four different Greek words uh, for love and the different nuances that's behind it. You know, eros, the, the, the sexual, uh, passionate kind of love. Um, obviously, that's completely eliminated. But one thing you see in this this book is that all meaningful love is actually eliminated. Um, even even you know, uh, phileo, friendship. You know, and, and, and familial love right. is gone yeah. as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. So let's let's get ahead to uh, chapter eight, 
where we are now in the middle of the ceremony of the Twelve. Uh, Jonas uh, is number 19 in his yearly group of 50, and uh, they call number 18, and then they call number 20, and they skip Jonas, and it's very troubling. It's very traumatic. For it's <laughs> very traumatic. Uh, and the whole audience realizes that something something terrible has happened, right? They skipped number 19, and then at the end of the assignments for all of the other 12s, uh, the uh, elder calls calls Jonas up on the stage, apologizes to him in this very stilted, formal, formal way yeah. that the rules mandate, and then it says this, reassuringly, she placed her arm against his ten shoulders. Jonas has not been assigned, she informed the crowd, and his heart sank. Then she went on, Jonas has been selected. He blinked. What did that mean? He felt a cold, collective questioning stir from the audience. They too were puzzled. In a firm, commanding voice, she announced, Jonas has been selected to be our next receiver of memory. Then he heard the gasp, the sudden intake of breath, drawn sharply in astonishment by each of the seated citizens. He saw their faces, the eyes widened in awe, and still he did not understand. Such a selection is very, very rare, the chief elder told the audience. Our community has only one receiver. It is he who trains his successor. Hmm. Jonas has not received an assignment. He's been elected. Selected. Selected. <laughs> yes, and it's, uh, it's interesting. You know, he, he looks across the way. And he looks at the uh, the body of elders sitting there, and he notices for the first time a man that he's never noticed before. Right. Uh, it was a man Jonas never noticed before, a bearded man with pale eyes. Interesting, right? So this kind of comes back to something we noted on earlier. But yeah, um, we're going to have to go forward to see what, what, what does this mean to be selected? How is this different than being given an assignment? And, and why, did the, why did one of the hosts of this podcast say elected when the text clearly said selected? I just because you're a Presbyterian. I am, I am Presbyterian. <laughs> because, because one of the things that you see as this develops, as more information is given to you as the story goes forward, is that uh, Jonas's selection was based upon the recognition of things that were true. Mm -hmm. In other words, they didn't flip a coin. They didn't pick a name out of a hat. They didn't look at applications. They didn't say, oh, we like this kid. They saw the next one. Mm -hmm. They perceived this is the one. Mm -hmm. And they selected the one who had been elected. <laughs> right? right? So, um, yeah, th this is not something that Jonas... Uh, even had on his radar. It's not. It's not a position that is that is ever assigned. Right. A person is selected once in a generation, if that often. The last time someone was selected for this position was ten years before, and it proved to be a failure. Mm -hmm. And that is its own drama in the story. Right. And now Jonas is the new selectee that is going to take the place of the one that was chosen a decade earlier. Yeah, and they call it the receiver of memory. Yeah. Like, what in the world is that supposed exactly. to mean, right? Yeah. The receiver of memory. First of all, how do you receive a memory? Uh, I mean, I can I can transmit an idea to you by yeah. talking to you about it, or 
but, but it's not my memory. It's not your memory. If I tell you about my childhood, which was epic and awesome because I grew up in the 80s, right? Uh, if I tell you about my childhood, you could have all of the information that is contained in my memories, but you don't have my memories. Right. Right? Yeah. So how do you receive a memory? That's one question, yes. right? And then also the question is, why is that a thing? Right. Yeah. Why, 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 do we even need why is there a receiver of memory? What what role does he play in the community? Why does he seem to be this kind of aloof character? He got mentioned earlier in the book briefly, yep. uh, when whenever the most a, important a, elder of the council, a major rule. If a major rule had to be considered to be changed, then they would have to refer it to the receiver of memory, right? That's so right. he was mentioned, but why? You only need a receiver of memory in the land of forgetfulness. Mm. Uh, a little bit later, the chief elder, continuing to describe this role that Jonas has been selected for, says this, Jonas, she said, turning to him, but speaking in a voice that the entire community could hear, the training required of you involves pain, physical pain. He felt fear flutter within him. You have never experienced that. Yes, you have scraped your knees and falls from your bicycle. Yes, you crushed your finger in a door last year. Jonas nodded, agreeing, as he recalled the incident and its accompanying misery. But you will be faced now, she explained gently, with pain of a magnitude that none of us here can comprehend because it is beyond our experience. The receiver himself was not able to describe it, only to remind us that you would be faced with it, that you would need immense courage. We cannot prepare you for that. Why yes. is pain, why is immense pain associated with receiving memory? And why is pain evidently necessary? She's saying this is something that none of the rest of us have ever experienced. None of the rest of us can understand. And yet it is inevitable. It's necessary in some way that you are going to go through this as the receiver has told us. And it's going to require great courage of you. Why is pain so important? in receiving memory and whatever it is that this memory is going to communicate. Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, it's helpful. I mean, if you're, if you're tracking the book up to this point, you, you notice it seems pretty clear that the community in one sense doesn't have anything they're afraid of suffering for the most part. I mean, the, the most pain maybe that somebody's felt in this community is a, a scraped knee from their bicycle, you know, or something along those lines. Uh, but they, they don't have to fear starvation, it doesn't seem like. They don't have to fear invading armies. They don't have to fear, you know, all of these kind of things. Um, so they're not familiar with the concept of real pain, that pain that's even sometimes not only just um, physical, but psychological, emotional, you know, the kind of true agony that comes with certain kinds of uh, existential experiences. Yes. Yes. Uh, one more thing I have to touch on in yeah. this section, and, and that is that all of the twelves who receive their assignments get folders with information in them, uh, specific rule sets for the new role that they have in society, and Jonas gets a folder too, and when he opens it up, he finds that there's almost nothing in his except a page with rules on it for his new role. And let me just mention these. Jonas, receiver of memory. Number one, 
go immediately at the end of school hours each day to the annex entrance behind the house of the old and present yourself to the attendant. Two, go immediately to your dwelling at the conclusion of training hours each day. Three, from this moment you are exempted from rules governing rudeness. You may ask any question of any citizen and you will receive answers. Four, do not discuss your training with any other member of the community, including parents and elders. Five, from this moment you are prohibited from dream telling. Six, except for illness or injury unrelated to your training, do not apply for any medication. Seven, you are not permitted to apply for release. Eight, you may lie. <laughs> So what are we supposed to make of these rules? Because I think I think all of them are interesting, but they four are. of them are super interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Number three, you are exempted from rules governing rudeness. Now, mm-hmm. the rules governing rudeness largely relate to what you are allowed to ask a person about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, there's going to be a conversation uh, between Jonas and Fiona in which she is telling him about her training in her new role that has been assigned, and she's wanting Jonas to tell her about his new training, and he won't do it, and she can't ask because that would be rude. Right. Jonas is allowed to ask anyone anything, and those whom he asks are expected to answer. Mm-hmm. Why is that so important in order to receive memory? Are we getting the idea that there's something about this role that's not just about memories of what has gone before? Mm. That we're seeking something more than just information, more than just recollection, yeah. and that in order to find whatever it is that we're seeking... We're going to have to set aside some of the polite niceties that have constrained conversation and meaningful inquiry before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think we'll just go ahead and throw out a key word here and we're going to say um, wisdom yeah. under, or understanding. Yes. Right. What um, one of the things that's one of the most prevailing themes in this book that I find personally so fascinating is there is a picture of two kinds of education mm-hmm. in the book. There is a purely functional kind of education, which is what everybody in the community receives. They learn how to do math. They learn how to, how to read, but they don't learn to read to read. They learn to read to be able to read the rule book or informational books about factories and production and, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, maybe, maybe how to grow plants for food and things like that. Right. But what is very interesting, and I may be jumping the gun with where you want to go no, here, you, but you're going right where I want to go. But what's very interesting is that when Jonas first meets the the receiver of memory, that he's going to take his position. He he's you know, he comes into the annex. He comes into the private rooms of the receiver, the locked rooms. The locked room. There's no there's no locked doors anywhere. This is really weird. Why is this door locked? Right. And he walks in and he starts noticing things immediately. He notices, for instance, that um, there are tables with legs on them that bulge out and have decorated feet. He notices that the fabric on some of the furniture is more luscious and thick, right? He just just things, and then he looks and he sees a ginormous wall full of books, more books than he could have possibly imagined existed and he thinks to himself something along the lines of 
can there be that many rules? Can there be that be that many books about factories and production of things? And let me read this yeah, specific go ahead. section. The yeah. books in his own dwelling were the only books that Jonas had ever seen. He had never known that other books existed. But this room's walls were completely covered by bookcases, filled, which reached to the ceiling. There must have been hundreds, perhaps thousands, of books. Their titles embossed in shiny letters. Jonas stared at them. He couldn't imagine what the thousands of pages contained. Could there be rules beyond the rules that governed the community? Could there be more descriptions of offices and factories and committees? <laughs> so what you what you should notice is what is completely absent from his understanding of what a book might have in it is something like history mm-hmm. or something like a story. Yeah. That he has no framework for thinking about books having anything but functional information. Rules and how-to manuals. Mm-hmm. That's all he's got. That's all he's got. Now, let me skip ahead just real quickly to, to make sure that everybody's able to follow what we're moving toward here. Yeah. So let me read the section where the receiver of memory begins to describe to Jonas on his first visit what is in store for him, what his role is in this training and what it's going to be. The man, this is the receiver, sighed, seeming to put his thoughts in order. Then he spoke again. Simply stated, he said, although it's not really simple at all, my job is to transmit to you all the memories I have within me, memories of the past. The man shook his head. I'm not being clear. It's not my past nor my childhood that I must transmit to you. He leaned back, resting his head against the back of the upholstered chair. It's the memories of the whole world, he said with a sigh. Before you, before me, before the previous receiver, and generations before him. Jonas frowned. The whole world, he asked. I don't understand. Do you mean not just us? Not just the community? Do you mean elsewhere, too? He tried in his mind to grasp the concept. I'm sorry, sir. I don't understand exactly. Maybe I'm not smart enough. I don't know what you mean when you say the whole world or generations before him. I thought there was only us. I thought there was only now. There's much more. There's all that goes beyond, all that is elsewhere, and all that goes back and back and back. I received all of those when I was selected, and here in this room, all alone, I re-experience them again and again. It is how wisdom comes, and how we shape our future. Yeah, I mean, it's so good. Um, In a locked room full of books and beautiful furniture and fabrics, we re-experience the memories of the whole world and that brings wisdom and that determines our future but i love jonas's confounded response you mean more than us more than just the community i i thought all there was was us i thought all there was was now having no conception of the depth of history the variety of cultures or ideas in the world or in, in the past and I, I and again i think this just so to me it pointedly illustrates the difference between two kinds of education hmm. um, as classical educators 
one of our major goals is to see students understand the depth of history, the diversity of ideas, um, to interact with those as carefully thinking people. But the kind of modern education that focuses solely on STEM, and I'm not an anti-STEM guy, science, tech, I mean, it's, it's important. I'm not saying it's not important, but, but if that's the sole purpose of education is to, is to focus on function, and you cut out history, you cut out literature, you cut out philosophy, you cut out aesthetics, um, you know, you're cutting out the soul of people. And you are creating a people who have a kind of odd amnesia or tunnel vision of only just understanding what's immediately in front of them and, and not being able to see anything beyond that. Right. Um, and so that's, that's the society that the community has chosen to be, or at least communities before them chose it for them. And now they're maintaining it. And now they're maintaining it and don't even know anything different and and you know we're, we're running out of time yeah, really quickly and we're, we we're skipping vast swaths of this book but there are three passages that i i want us to try to to hit real quickly and right. then whatever else you feel like i've skipped that that we need to circle <laughs> back to but um three passages that speak to this very issue right um so in in one case um Jonas begins to receive these memories, and it's a very dramatic, it's, it's really like a prophetic vision experience. It's like being caught up in a vision, actually participating in uh, events of the past. And he's exposed to things like snow, like hills, like sledding, like sailing, like hot, like cold, pain, and all of these kinds of things. And as he is talking to the receiver about where did all of this go, why don't we have these things now, this conversation takes place. But what happened to those things? Snow and the rest of it. Climate control. Snow made growing food difficult, limited the agricultural periods, and unpredictable weather made transportation almost impossible at times. It wasn't a practical thing, so it became obsolete when we went to sameness. And hills too, he added. They made conveyance of goods unwieldy. Trucks, buses, slowed them down. So, he waved his hand as if a gesture had caused hills to disappear. Sameness, he concluded. Jonas frowned. I wish we had those things still, just now and then. The old man smiled. So do I, he said. But that choice is not ours. But sir, Jonas suggested, since you have so much power, the man corrected him. Honor, he said firmly. I have great honor. So will you. But you will find that that is not the same as power. So a society decides what is important to them. You decide what your values are, and then you prioritize, you make choices, you make uh, trades to say the practicality of conveying goods, feeding people, uh, building this particular kind of civilization that we think is ideal, even if it means abandoning or, in some cases, destroying the diversity of geography, topography, climate that we once had naturally, all of those things can go away because we don't see the value of that particular fence, right? To, to evoke Chesterton here for a moment, right? We find a fence in the forest and we, we don't know why it's there. And so one person wants to tear it down because it's in the way and the other person wants to figure out why it's there, mm -hmm. right? 
Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm reminded of um, a, a movie, actually, that illustrates the same point well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to be careful in mentioning I'm not necessarily recommending it because I don't recall all the content. So, so okay. <laughs> buyer beware. Um, but Equilibrium with Christian Bale. I don't yeah. know if you've ever seen that. I did, I think. Uh, very similar notions. They, they take medication to rid themselves of any real emotion. The, uh, the, you know, the government has suppressed the arts, has suppressed, uh, literature and things like that, you know, um, all, all towards this kind of perfectly controlled society. Now I'd say that that particular story has a bit of a darker twist in, in some sense in this, uh, because, well, you have to watch the movie, I guess I'll be careful about it, but I'll be honest. (laughs) I don't remember anything about the movie except the gun kata. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there was a gun caught in it. There is. It's that, pretty cool. That was the only thing that I could not tell you anything about the movie except that it had a gun caught in it, and I yeah. thought that was really cool. So by kata you mean tell people what you mean. Well, I mean like a form. A form, right? Yeah. 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 But well, I'm just not. A, I'm not everybody's a practitioner of martial arts. Word, okay. So right. you know, yes. Yeah. They're 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 exercising different forms of gun firing, and they have these extreme gunfight battles are pretty cool i recall it yeah. being pretty cool but it's been a long time since i saw that movie <laughs> uh, another thing that jonas is being exposed to through the reception of memories is color mm-hmm. and and of course that is what he was that's the change that was the that change was the in the apple All right is he was beginning to see beyond he was beginning to stare through the river to the bottom to discover things that other people had not yet found yeah. he's seen color where it is so why don't other people see it? And so that becomes a conversation. Jonas wasn't interested just then in wisdom. It was the colors that fascinated him. Why can't everyone see them? Why did colors disappear? The giver shrugged. Our people made that choice. The choice to go to sameness. Before my time, before the previous time, back and back and back, we relinquished color when we relinquished sunshine and did away with differences. He thought for a moment. We gained control of many things, but we had to let go of others. And we mentioned this right at the beginning of the podcast, right? There's always a trade-off. Always. And to get to this place, what have, what have, we, what have we released? Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, C.S. Lewis in Abolition of Man makes a, a point about something very similar to this, saying that, you know, each, uh, each generation, as they exercise their power, as they seek to control and harness the powers of mankind, they actually narrow the the uh, the choices and abilities of the next generation. So every generation uh, kind of inherits from the previous generation certain things that the, that have been stipulated to them that they seemingly have no control of, or or maybe not even aware that there ever was anything else, any other choice. Uh, so this this process pushed far enough really leads to what Lewis calls the abolition of man. That man is no longer even man. Man is something other. Next episode. Next episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And and again, what have we inherited as axiomatic? What presuppositions have we simply adopted by virtue of our heritage, a tradition that we've never really examined? Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living, right? Mm-hmm. What, what are we surrendering by no longer reading great books and living instead on our smartphones that are making us all stupid, right? What, what are we losing uh, by spending more time on Twitter or TikTok you know, or Facegram or Instabook, you know, rather than in the classics of 
the great tradition in the Western world. And that and that kind of takes us to the place where, at least for my part, I'm, I'm content to kind of start to wrap it up here. There may be more that we need to say, um, uh, a lot more that we could say about Definitely. the book for sure. But at the beginning of chapter 16, there is a section that I think speaks to the moral responsibility of history and of memory. Uh, John Lukasz, uh, in uh, 20th century historian uh, wrote about history, thinking of it as an academic discipline, as the remembered past. And there are a number of parts of this this novel that I think resonate with that. History is not just what happened, but it's the remembered past. It's the it's the recollection and analysis and learning from the the wisdom that flows out of remembering what has gone before. Chapter 16 begins this way. Jonah did not Jonas did not want to go back. He didn't want the memories, didn't want the honor, didn't want the wisdom, didn't want the pain. He wanted his childhood again, his scraped knees and ball games. He sat in his dwelling alone, watching through the windows, seeing children at play, citizens bicycling home from uneventful days at work, ordinary lives free of anguish, because he had been selected, as others before him had, to bear their burden. But the choice was not his. He returned each day to the annex room. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is one of the great ideas in literature of being chosen. Yep. Um, being called to a task that you did not seek. Maybe in his case, in many cases, didn't even know, right? Didn't know right. it was a thing to, that was needed, you know? Um, and yet you're called from kind of relative obscurity to bear the burden, usually for many, um, that they cannot bear themselves. Um, and it's usually like Frodo, mm -hmm. right? It is a it is a task. It is a thing that will change you. It may be a task that actually un you be undone by this, right? Um, and Jonas is, is that guy in this case. And he, the idea of, of history being that. Yeah. of memory being that, of this understanding and awareness being the burden that he must carry so that others don't have to. Now, the question that the novel's going to grapple with in the, in the second half that we have not even touched is, should they have to? Mm -hmm. Would society be better if they had to? Um, but, but we won't even explore that. In, in, in this part of the novel, the, the whole position, the whole role, the title receiver of memory exists so that we can deliver the population from the burden right. of history and memory. And then that role brings with it its own moral responsibility. And, and I would argue, just you know, for, for whatever it's worth, that... As human beings, we have that moral responsibility. You don't have to be a professional historian. I'm certainly not. You don't have to be an academic philosopher. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have a moral uh, imperative to read specific works from the classical period. Uh, you've you've got to read Plato's Republic, you know, or you're right. not you're not a true human being. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. But I think that being a human being, being an image bearer of God. Being in a position of dominion over the created order as a sub-lord, a vice-gerent of the maker, involves the moral responsibility of memory. Remember and learn from what you remember and, and seek wisdom 
Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. There is a moral obligation to seek truth, to buy the truth and sell it not. And you won't find that on TikTok. Yeah. You won't find that adequately, fully, you know, on your smartphone. Yeah. This, you know, the Old Testament could be described as the long history of Israel forgetting who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, this is you know, remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. Remember, it's such an important idea in Scripture. Right. In the Christian tradition, in the Western tradition. This is why we have the great books of the Western world. This is why we have so many of the books in my library and yours that we spend our lives reading is so that we might remember because as we began this podcast talking about the fact that earlier generations can sometimes help us see our blind spots that we ourselves have not yet perceived, that's what the remembered past does. That's what receiving memory enables us to do, and that is to peer through that river and see what's at the bottom that we never noticed was there all along. Yeah. Well, and I I think that, you know, one of the things that of, of all of God's uh, creatures here on earth, anyway, I'm trying to figure out what's the best way to word this, but regardless, uh, more that what separates us from the beasts, right, is as image bearers, we are reasoning creatures. Yes. Um, and so we, you know, we have a moral obligation to develop that. Now, and I agree with you, that doesn't mean well, everybody has to read Plato or everybody has to read this particular book or that particular book. But there is an obligation that says, you know, you must be a thinking thing. But but part of the interesting thing about human beings is that um, without diving into a whole discussion on free will or libertarianism or anything crazy like that, but we have the ability to choose not to develop that, right? We have the ability to turn away from some of those innately God-given qualities that, that are supposed to make us uniquely part of image bearers, Um and, and in what we do with our own education, I don't even just mean formal education, but how we pursue knowledge and wisdom, that dictates a lot about who we are. Yeah. Um, and whether we, you know, rise, continually rise further above the level of beast and towards the image of God, or whether we kind of turn back the other direction and start descending back towards some sort of bestiality. Exactly. Exactly. The Giver, uh, awesome book. We could talk about this <clears throat> for hours and hours over multiple episodes. Jacob, give us two or three main takeaways from the book. Main takeaways. Um, I would say that, you know, of all the themes that run through it, they're all interconnected, first of all. But of all the themes that run through it, questions about um, the value of human life, uh, what, what makes every individual person valuable, and then not just only value, but what makes a life meaningful. And it's important to distinguish the, dis- the difference between every life being valuable, but not every valuable life ends up being a meaningful life. Um, and so that's a really important question. Uh, this book wrestles also with uh, just questions having to do with human freedom. Um, as I said, there's there's very strong message of, of two different kinds of educations, a kind of education that enslaves, a kind of education that frees. Um, there's just so much to see here. And like you mentioned earlier, I, I am in the process of producing a study guide on this book right now. Maybe by the time this actually rolls out and you're hearing this, I maybe have it, have it all completed. 
Um, so I take a lot longer to just walk through each chapter of the book and mine it's every jewel out of it. But I'll even say this, since I'm doing a study guide and it is, it's fairly in depth, I would encourage you, if you're going to read this book for the first time, just read the book. Um, I would love for you to do my, my study guide and go even further with it. But this book deserves, in my opinion, to be one of those that you just sit down and consume cover to cover in one close to one setting as possible almost right um take it in and then go back and go through it deeper yeah it's really not a long book it's no it's it's as you said it's it's actually i mean it's, it's accessible to to younger younger people um uh, the 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 writing levels at the same time both simple and yet she does a great job i would say just as, from an educator standpoint i would say she does a great job of introducing vocabulary into it uh her maybe her concern for vocabulary is reflected in, in the community somewhat you know i don't know but either way um i just I, i've read the book five or six times i have not exhausted it yet um and i just i couldn't commend it to you more and the whole series really is excellent multiple themes that we find in the book that we have not even touched on yeah. or barely brushed uh you know the the hem of the garment uh so i think both of us highly recommend get the giver Make sure that uh, you give this book a careful read. Read it for pleasure, as Jacob said. Read it, if possible, in one sitting. It's, it literally could be a one-day read for, for many of our, our listeners and viewers. Uh, and then go back. And whether it's using the annotation methods that we discussed in our last episode, whether it's taking advantage of the study guides that uh, Jacob is putting online, uh, do a deep dive on this book. It is well worth your time. It will well reward that effort. And I think it will equip you to then do that kind of analysis with more difficult, less accessible books, even in the same genre of dystopian Yeah, and that's a great point. This is this is one reason I love this book so much, is it is a book to begin that journey on. I, I don't know of any book that is at this level of accessibility and yet still deals with the range of great ideas um, and, and really... Um, yeah, it's a place to kind of kick off the training wheels if you know if you haven't gotten into literature that deals with some of the more universal ideas that are important. This is a fantastic there, place to start. There was a reason that as we sat down and began outlining episodes for the show, uh, we said, "What's the first real whole book that we're going to introduce? What's the first work of fiction that we're going to introduce?" There's so much from classical literature and earlier periods of of English writing uh, that we could have chosen. There's a reason we chose this one. It's a great entry point, and uh, we would highly recommend it. So, Jacob, I've enjoyed it as always. What uh, what can we say in terms of people connecting with us, uh, finding us online, and reaching out to us if they've got comments, questions, high praise, uh, suggestions? Yes, uh, and I'm not going to botch it this time because I botched it last time, so I made sure I was ready. So email, if you want to send us an email and just tell us what you think or have any questions or suggestions even, you can uh, email us at tolelegepod at gmail.com. That's T-O-L-L-E-L-E-G-E-P-O-D at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to sign up for our substack, it is the tolelegepod at uh, dot substack.com. Or we're on Twitter at Tole underscore Lege underscore pod. <laughs> and we'd love to have you follow us on there as well. Uh, our, we're on iTunes. I think we're on most of the major podcasting uh, networks. Uh, so you can find us just by searching Tole Lege Podcast. Uh, there are a couple other ones, but they seem to not be running anymore. And ours is current. So we should be pretty easy to find um, by that name. So yeah, I would encourage you to connect with us. Uh, reach out to us. Tell us what you think. If you... 
Uh, use iTunes especially. Uh, consider leaving us a review if you like the show. If you don't like the show, forget you ever heard it and don't review it. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> yeah, de de definitely. Please do rate, review, share if you find it useful. Uh, reach out to us. Tell us books that you would like to see us discuss in this way. Uh, give us suggestions. Uh, you know, uh, share share your criticisms. We're perfectly happy to hear that. We're learning as we go, and uh, just super thankful for the opportunity, brother. I I, I look forward to these. Requests recording sessions. I enjoy so much the conversations. I'm learning a lot. I uh, hope that everyone else is as well and looking forward to continuing uh, to, to work together on this program. All right. Until next time, take, take up and read. In the beginning, you were there, yes. The Totally Like A Podcast is produced, filmed, and edited by Elijah Ellis. Music composed by Eric Welch. Copyright The Totally Like A Podcast, 2022. Can't hold you